This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is actress and voiceover narrator January Lavoie, who has hundreds of audiobooks under her belt. She was named Publishers Weekly Audiobook Narrator of the Year for 2013. Um, as an actress, you might recognize her from her role on One Life to Live, and I think like every actor ever, she has been on Law & Order. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. January, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, it's, it's a podcast about libraries, just to hear about how you, what your experience was with libraries when you were growing up. So I had like a, a little bit of a fantasy experience as a kid because we moved into a, a new house when I was about seven or eight years old. And my mom was a little, a little protective. We weren't really allowed to like go far out of our neighborhood. Um, and there was a, a huge branch library in the town that I grew up in, uh, Trumbull, Connecticut, that was way too far away. We had to get driven to there. But just about two blocks from my house was a tiny little library called the Fairchild Memorial Library. I have no idea if it's even still there <laughs> as we moved out of the town 25 years ago. But um, it was this, it, it felt like a, it felt like a kid sized library almost. I mean, it was a full library. It was a branch, but to me, it just felt like it was there for me and for us and for the kids in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and it was right next door to the church we went to. And so we could go on the way home if it was open or, you know, we could, it just, it really, I imprinted really early on the idea that a library was something everyone was supposed to have within walking distance <laughs> of their house. Uh, and it wasn't until much later in life that I realized what an absolute gift that was. Um, but yeah, so that, it, that was a very early, early and often um, feature of my childhood. And I know I'm sure as an audiobook narrator, you've read a lot of books and you are kind of, I guess, probably, probably swept away by books like most of us are, but I think you get to then bring that to life. So. Yeah. I always say that, I mean, I didn't even know audiobook narration was a job until I sort of had it. I never thought of it as something that people did full time. I, I guess, I guess in my mind, I sort of thought of it as a one-off, you know, that somebody would just get asked to read a book or maybe the authors did it. It wasn't really something I paid that much attention to. I always say that if you had told me when I was a kid that somebody was going to pay me to read books for a living, I would have thought you were making fun of me um, because, you know, it was the, <laughs> the thing I got in trouble for the most <laughs> was with the flashlight under the covers, you know, <laughs> we're way past the appointed bedtime. And, you know, I just always had too many books on book fair day, uh, you know, at school having to make the agonizing choice of, you know, oh, you can only have six and I had 11 and, you know, all that kind of thing. So it's, 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 it's tremendous. I mean, it's a dream job for, for someone like me and to be able to one of my favorite parts of the job is that I I'm one of the first people to read a book often you know after the author the editor and a few people at the publisher uh, you know it comes to me and I sort of have this awesome responsibility and 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 just the kind of divine treat of getting to be one of the first people to go into the world that the author has created so it's a it's a pretty cool job. <laughs> that is really cool. Um, <laughs> like how far in advance do you, like, do you get the final, final copy or are you like reading a copy that you maybe have to change the script a little bit later because it's still getting edited? 
Yeah. So what they do is we get what's called a pass, a first pass, a second pass. We usually record from either a final pass or something above a third pass, um, which, you know, is how many times it's gone through the different, you know, editing and QC and, you know, edited for content and edited for punctuation and all the different things that happen to it. Um, so oftentimes I'll get what's called a prep script and it will have in big letters on the um on the file name, do not record (laughs) because they never want us to confuse a prep script with a, with a final. Um, And occasionally if we get very, very close to a deadline, which can happen sometimes with like mass market, uh, you know, I I narrate for James Patterson, Mary Higgins, Clark, like those sorts of, you know, massive multi-million copies sold. Um, Sometimes you'll get really close to the wire with those. So you'll end up having to record a book that you know you're going to go back into the studio and and do some final fixes um, when the final pass comes in really, really close to the release date. Um, But usually I have about a month on average. You know, sometimes you'll get something way earlier than that, but that's rare. And sometimes you'll get something a week in advance, but that's fairly (laughs) rare. So usually I have about three weeks to a month where I get the book, I get to spend time. I mean, that's all of my recreational reading or what we think of as our recreational reading time, the time I spend reading in bed, the time I spend reading in the evening, the time I used to spend when I lived in New York city commuting, that's all spent prepping the next book I'm, I'm going to be doing. So I'm usually at any given moment, I'm recording a book. I'm prepping a book, actively reading and prepping a book. And then I've usually got one in the shoot. So well, that's, yeah. that's fun prep work though. Cause you get to, <laughs> you get to read books. Like you said, you get to read yeah. books for a living. So. It is, it is. And I, I try to prep my books. I try to prep them as a reader and not as a narrator. Mm-hmm. So I try very hard to, I have a system by which, you know, I use my iPad, I use, I annotate and I, I sort of read the book and just gently give myself, you know, an underline or a highlight, like a nudge so that when I go back and check all the annotations, that's when I do the actual work. If I have to research a pronunciation or a, a dialect or an accent, or I have to, you know, um, uh, figure out if there's something that seems inconsistent to me and I have to figure out how it links to something else, contextual stuff. But I try really hard when I'm prepping to read the book start to finish as a reader, because I feel that that's the experience I'm meant to translate to the listener. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when my heart is racing as I'm reading the book, I have to make sure that I'm allowing for you to have that experience as the listener. So to understand the sort of sweep of the book is really important. Um, and that's how I try to encounter them when I prep them. Yeah. And I assume that that, that probably helps to th- keep that in mind as you're reading it, because as you read it, you're going to read the whole book and you know, if you're reading a mystery, who the bad guy is, but you can't that's right. use the voice early on and go, ha ha ha. Hello, everybody. I'm the villain. And it is, it, I have to admit, even as a lover of the genre of sort of, you know, mystery and suspense, it is always a bummer when I get, you know, to the end of a book and I find out that someone was pretending to be someone all along, because that is a convention that works really well in print and is incredibly difficult to achieve. Uh, in in audio it's possible and we do do it but it's tough to make a voice sound like an authentic person but then to make it a disguise (laughs) a vocal disguise um it's challenging it's challenging (laughs) yeah i I heard a podcast the other day talking about um mel blank doing cartoon voices and they said he could do bugs bunny pretending to be daffy duck and they're like oh my you you just can't do that (laughs) how do you do that (laughs) 
Exactly. That's exactly it. And it's such a high level sort of thing to do. And, you know, there, there, there are so many tricky things about it because like, for example, certain, say certain accents, um, you know, if, if, if I'm doing say a Scottish accent for a character, there are certain words where if there isn't a word with a, with an R sound in a sentence, you won't necessarily know that I'm doing a Scottish accent because there are a lot of, there's a lot of points of contact between American English and Scottish English. So there are certain sounds, certain vowel sounds, certain consonant sounds that if they're missing from a sentence, you won't actually know that that's an accent I'm doing. And I don't have control over that. I can't just randomly add a great word that sounds fantastically (laughs) Scottish and a brogue into a sentence to let you know that's what I'm doing. So these are the kinds of like peculiarities of this job that, you know, we sort of just find our way around when we encounter them in real time. Yeah, and I saw I was reading something um, that you had written earlier about the fact that uh, you, you make you you really want to honor the words that the author put down. So like you need like like you're saying there, you can't add a word in there. You're presenting what the author wrote. Like get, that's your job is to translate that into a different way. Sort of like when you're an actor, you're not rewriting the script on the on the fly unless they tell you to. But generally, you're trying to do that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think a lot of theater actors have an easier time adapting to audio formats because, you know, having worked in television, it is very possible on the set, you know, it's not uncommon at all to have, to to change a word, to change a sentence. You know, you have a quick conference because everyone's there, you know, oftentimes the writers are even accessible Um, and you can say, oh, you know, I think this flows better if we do it this way. In the theater, you don't get to do that, you know, unless you're working on a new play and it's in a workshop phase. And the playwright happens to be there. But otherwise, you know, you don't get to change Shakespeare. You don't get to change Chekhov. You don't get to change Lorraine Hansberry. You have to do it as written, right? Right. And and it's the same exact thing in the booth. You know, my one of my uh, producer friends always says, uh, we're not writing, we're reading. And that's, you know, that's really the simplest way to put it. Um, And then you do a lot of... um you do all kinds of different books. I mean, you're doing science fiction, you're doing kids books, you're doing mysteries and everything. Um, When you're doing something like, like a star Wars, you do a lot of star Wars when you're doing Mm -hmm. that. Is it a struggle for you to find a voice for a character who already has like when you're doing princess Leia, you already have Carrie Fisher who's done princess Leia. (laughs) Do you use that in how you speak those lines? I will forever be grateful for the fact that Carrie Fisher did at least one, but probably multiple interviews that you can find where she talks about the, how princess Leia sometimes had a British accent and sometimes didn't. And that's because she was going to drama school and had English friends, but that, you know, that it wasn't in her for Carrie, it was not intentional. It was just a young actress sort of doing her thing. Right. Um, and so I felt like that gave me the permission to be able to sort of live between worlds. And as things have progressed, I've tended to do the sort of, um, you know, older general Organa stuff anyway. So I can kind of live in the place where, where Carrie was in the later part of her life. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's sort of an easier task than the kind of all over the place where, where she was vocally early on. Um, but you do try to, you know, I always say what we do is not in any way intended to be mimicry. And there are, you know, giving all credit to friend, you know, friends like Mark Thompson, who is like the Star Wars narrator. And Mark has been a diehard fan since childhood and can do the most, I mean, almost frightening, uh, 
imitations of so many characters. I mean, he's, I, I, you know, he belongs on, you know, like in in animation on the Muppet show, like he's just (laughs) the best at it. Um, so that that's a different skill set than what I bring. And so for those of us who, who can't do that kind of, you know, one-to-one sort of mimicry, um, I'm always just trying to honor the sound and the experience. It's like, the voice of General Organa gives you a feeling, right? And so if I can make a voice that gives you a similar feeling when you hear it, that that she's been through something in life, that she is in command, confident, compassionate, uh, steely, like that's what I start to think of. So I think less about like hitting this very tiny bullseye in the middle of the chart about how, how Carrie sounded, but rather like inhabiting that kind of woman. Um, and I think about that, you know, it, you do think about it more specifically when you're, when you're doing, you know, um, a franchise like that, you know, I also do, uh, Star Trek and, uh, I've done, you know, I, I do, um, Janeway for Star Trek and I've done Phasma for Star Wars. And that was super fun because her voice is amazing. Um, but you know, you do, you just try to give people, you try to honor it and give people the experience and the feeling. And that's where I set my sights. Okay. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, in acting, if you're doing a Shakespeare play, you're not the first person to play Juliet. <laughs> There's been that's lots right. of people doing it, but you just have to get the feeling of it and give, give it your own spin. Yeah. So. That, that's exactly right. And it, you know, it is, it is a little trickier with beloved characters that have been right. inhabited by very specific actors. Um, at the same time, we're all doing so much now with so many different universes and so many different media, you know, there's, there's cartoons and films and podcasts and, you know, uh, fan fiction. And so it, it kind of all gets into the soup of it, which is nice. It, it kind of gives us a little bit more space to to make things um to make things that that honor the original idea without having to feel like they're an absolute mm-hmm. copy yeah um when you're when you're doing when you're when you're approaching a, a kid's book do you approach that any, differently and than you do for an adult book or is it just kind of your it's a diff, different voice kind of you're getting into i think that for very young children we are thinking about the child i'm always thinking about you know reading it to a specific child i know and that informs sort of the pacing and the care and the, you know, the sort of kindness that you infuse the storytelling with. Once you get past very young, I think I, I, I think I'm, I'm narrating to the writing because I think that, you know, people have said to me before, like with the Diviners series, for example, like, you know, there's a sort of, there's a vividness to the, the characters and the colors and, you know, the, the villains and the monsters and the, it, there, there's just such a different scope to it. And uh, my response to that is, but that's what's in the writing. And I think that young adult writers have, I just think they have a broader palette to paint with. Um, and I think that that then transfers onto me as my imagination goes more places. You know, if I'm doing a, you know, a, a procedural novel, uh, you know, a, a cop drama that takes place in a small town in, in Wisconsin, I have a certain palette that I can paint with that will to you, the listener feel believable. And, and, and the believability is a huge part of the job. You have to, I have to take you to that town and I have to make you believe that what's happening there is real. Right. When I'm doing a, you know, young adult fantasy that takes place in a haunted 1920s, New York city. <laughs> uh, I have a, the, the palette is much, much bigger. 
Um, so <laughs> we talked a little bit about like finding voices. Do you, do you find that when you're doing it, you want to find a voice for when it's done in third person that you want to find a narrator voice as well? Yeah. I always let the narrator voice kind of be born on the day. Um, once I've read the book, I, you know, when I, I think we, I think we all do this. I don't know. But I think that when we read a book on the page, we all hear it in our head, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I've been, you know, I've gone through two or three or four or 500 pages with this author and this story. So it's in there. It's in there. I hear it already. So, you know, when I sit down in the booth on day one and say, chapter one, the voice that comes out is the voice for that book. And it's not something that I've planned or thought about because it's just going to have to be what's comfortable to sit with for a few days and, and be able to complete that project. Character voices, on the other hand, occasionally I will choose, or as I like to say, cast in advance, um, particularly if it's a, if it's a book with a lot of similar characters, you know, um, a bunch of cops or a bunch of scientists or a bunch of, you know, the, the, the one that, you know, I did one last summer, I did a Patricia Cornwell book that took place at a NASA lab, you know, and so you've got all these people. Um, and so in that, it becomes really important for me to be able to, so that I can keep them straight. I have to cast them as like that. I think sounds just like my old UPS man. And that one sounds like a woman I knew in my first job. And, you know, there, I just cast them out of my life. Right. Um, and occasionally I'll cast them out of famous actors who I think would be really good at, <laughs> at that part. <laughs> and then just do kind of your own spin on yes, that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, is it any, do you, I guess there's not a preference, but, um, is there a difference when you're doing like an anthology where you're just doing like the one voice versus when you're doing reading the entire book? Is that process? I know the process is probably different, but the way you approach it, is, is that different? Um, you mean in terms of multi-voice projects as opposed to right, like the Char like, like the Charlotte's Web thing you did recently, where you only did a voice of like one yeah. character, yeah. Yeah, it is different. I mean, there's a different kind of anticipation about wanting to hear. You know, I don't, I don't generally need to listen to the books that I record myself because I know what they sound like <laughs> um, from start to finish. But I'm always eager when I'm part of a multicast to to listen to how I integrated into the whole. Um, and you know, you just sort of have to do it and let it go and, and trust your producers and your directors and your engineers to make it all work. Um, so there's a little bit of, I think anxiety is not quite the word for it, but there's a little bit of like, Oh, I hope I, I hope I fit, you know, I hope, I hope I fit into what everyone else was doing. Um, and I think most, you know, the producers are excellent at, at knowing how to, how to put together a group of narrators who vibe. Um, occasionally we get to do them in the same room, which is fun, um, and totally different experience, obviously not anymore. Uh, but back in the day when we could <laughs> right. be in a room together, <laughs> um, and, and that's cool, but yeah, it even, I, I think that the, the, the sort of process difference is that you have to go even deeper into your belief of what your character is because it's all you have. Um, and so you really have to be very certain, um, of what you want what you want them to be and where they're coming from. Um, and that's sort of the approach difference. Okay. Um, and in that Charlotte's web project, what, what voice did you do in that one? It was Charlotte. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Had, had, had you, had, had you read that book as a kid? 
I would say only about a hundred <laughs> to five hundred times and the cartoon. I mean, I burst into tears when Kelly Gilday at Penguin Random House reached out to me to ask me to be a part of it because I really I had no idea that I didn't know they were doing it. And then I had no idea that she was going to ask me to play Charlotte because in my mind, Debbie Reynolds is Charlotte. You know, I mean, I grew up watching that cartoon and I, you know, I had to, I actually had to work quite hard to make sure that my Charlotte was distinct from hers. And so when I went back to the book, um, I had to really look for any words that, that E.B. White used to help me, to help me create my own Charlotte. And the one word, really the only word that he uses specifically to describe her voice in the book is thin, Hmm. which interestingly, Debbie Reynolds has the opposite of a thin voice. (laughs) You know, her voice is so full and warm and gorgeous. And so um, my task for me then became, okay, let's integrate what we know about this spider, which is that she's wise and very warm and, and, and kind and a little stern and um, you know, helpful and all the things that she is, but with this one word that E.B. White gave me, which is thin. Um, and so that's, that's what I worked with. And so my Charlotte sounds very different um, from Debbie Reynolds, Charlotte, but it's uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it came out. And then they got a, a little known struggling actress named Meryl Street to do the narration. So <laughs> I think it all turned out. <laughs> I think we all got the support we needed and it, it turned out okay in the end. <laughs> well, it was nice of them to give a, new, a newbie a shot there like that. <laughs> it is. It is. You love to see it. You know? <laughs> uh, I did see when I was looking over your credits, my son just, is just recently reading that Max in the Midnight series. And I was like, oh, you oh, read that. Yeah. <laughs> That was so much fun. That was one where we got to be in the room together. Michael Crouch and I got to be in the room together. And oh my gosh, I actually, it's one of the few times, I shouldn't say this on an interview, but this is one of the few times where I snuck my phone in and I took a record. We were laughing, I mean, we were crying laughing um, because we were having so much fun with these characters. And I snuck my phone into the booth and actually did a little wild recording of us uh, doing some like two, you know, sort of evil characters, like, and just having like the best time coming up with our evil plots and screaming with laughter. And it was just so much fun. Um, yeah, that was a great, that was a great program. Um, you also did uh, the, another kid series. You, I think you've done the entire series, that Unicorn Rescue Society. Yes. Are, are those kind of things, or, or I guess anything, do you get a choice on that kind of thing? I mean, do they just call you and say, hey, we want you to do this? Do you get to request titles? <laughs> like, oh, I really uh, want to read this next Patricia Cornwell book or whatever. You know, not, no, um, that's not sort of. The, the way that the the way that the requesting generally works is that an author will request a narrator, oh, okay, and then it comes to us and we can say yes or no. Um, many times, most times, um, I, I don't I don't sort of do this anymore. I think because it's very possible to just go on the internet and hear me talking. Uh, but I, um, but sometimes still I will have an author say that they want to hear a sample of me doing their book because their book is different than any other book, you know? So, um, I'm absolutely happy to do that for authors. Some authors just say, I want January. Can, can you, can we see if she's available? Um, so I don't, I, I rarely turn books down unless I really don't have time in my schedule. I have, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy to admit that I have turned down books um, because I did not feel comfortable with the content. 
Um, and that can be sort of anything, you know, I mean, that can be, um, gender-based race, ethnicity-based politically, you know, there's lots of things. I've also read books that I patently disagree with the philosophy of the book, but I'm, I'm not here to, I, I'm not, it's not for me about any kind of, um, censorship even or control for me it's about can i serve this right can i serve this story believably and can i serve it as january uh which is particularly important i think in nonfiction. but there are uh, many many books that i've read that i you know the perspective is not mine but i thought that's an interesting acting challenge i, I think i can make that work i think i can i think i can make that work you know and then that's kind of fun too so um, you know, there's a certain line over which I, that I would never cross of things that I felt were harmful, um, you know, but, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot out there. And, and for us to become too siloed in our own um, interests and our own beliefs, I mean, I've become interested in so many different things, hobbies, lifestyles, topics, uh, areas of history because of books that I've narrated that I would never have chosen for myself. Um, so that's also an awesome part of my job. <laughs> um, do you approach nonfiction any differently than fiction when you're reading? I think it's just a different, it's a different gear, really. Um, uh, you know, oftentimes a nonfiction book will be, again, getting into those four, five, six hundred pages and finding a way to make sure that you are not becoming hypnotized by a rhythm, you know, because the difference between, of course, nonfiction and fiction is that fiction is broken up by character voices. Nonfiction is not. So that's the big overarching challenge of it is making sure that you are staying, that you are staying dynamic without doing things to what the author has written, you know, that's very arbitrary that no one wants to listen to. Um, So that's kind of the challenge. Um, But, you know, I've, I've, I mean, I've read some stunning nonfiction. Um, uh, Charles, I think it's Charles King. Oh, I'm ter- it's terrible that I can't remember his last name right now, who wrote Gods of the Upper Air, mm-hmm. um, which I narrated last year, uh, which was just a stunning book about anthropology and anthropologists. Yeah, Charles King. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I was, I've been, I was talking about that book for six months after I narrated and it won a slew of awards and got great reviews. And um, there was nothing difficult. It was incredibly dense and, uh, you know, took place between the late 1800s and the 1940-ish. And I I didn't have to do a thing to that book to keep it interesting, you know? (laughs) So uh, yeah, you just, you just try and stay, stay engaged, stay close to it. Um, well, I wanted to wrap up with um, bringing it back to libraries again. I know you've attended um, the American Library Association conference um, in the past, I guess, back when we had conferences. <laughs> again, yeah. we, are, we can't do any of this kind of stuff anymore. Um, but do you have a particular um, memory of one that you, uh, anything in particular that you really, really stands out for you as a good time that you had? I know I saw a picture that you had of where you were wearing the Princess Leia buns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, that I believe was, that was my first ALA, which was in San Francisco. I mean, I have an incredibly wonderful memory of that because um, it was San Francisco pride and it was the, it was when marriage equality passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was like an incredibly, uh, you know, there was just so much joy and it felt, you know, particularly 
when we're talking about libraries and librarians, we're talking about a group of people who are sort of by, by nature and by vocation, they're, they are the caregivers of their communities. You know, um, I think there, there are so many stories that you hear you know, about librarians who are aware, oh, so aware. And I, you know, I'm, you become aware of these things now that I'm an educator, I'm, I become, you become more in tune with these things. But, you know, sometimes the kids who are spending two and three and four and five hours at the library after school are not there just because they love books. They're there because they don't have any place else to go, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, and, and, you know, same for parents and, and older folks in the community. I mean, to me, libraries and librarians are an essential resource. Um, I'm, I'm glad that they're, you know, allowed to be home right now. But of course, when we think about essential workers, we should be thinking about libraries and librarians. Um, the access that people have, some people's only access to the printed word or to the internet or all sorts of things is through a library. So, you know, I'll I'll say the greatest part of being at ALA every year is being in a giant uh, conference center with, you know, tens of thousands of people who sort of believe in the same social mission. And again, this is absent any thought of of gender, race, you know, faith. Uh, it's, it's just, we all believe in the mission, which is that we need books. We need stories. We need to tell stories. The stories need to be about everyone and they need to be accessible to everyone. <laughs> uh, so it's actually always kind of emotional. I find myself every day, every time I go to an ALA and I walk onto the convention floor for the first time, I think, ah, oh, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> and there's sort of no question. Um, so that's kind of my favorite part of that. Well, we're glad that you're around to help bring some of those stories to life. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. So January, thank you so much for coming on the show today and telling us about some audio stuff that you've been working on. And um, I I know a lot of librarians are big fans of audiobooks, and I know we all have big, huge audio collections. And um, right now, people are still able to get those digitally a little bit. But yeah, we'll look forward and people can come back and get their little CDs too that (laughs) people still want. Yeah. Yeah, I, we appreciate you so much, and uh, just very, very grateful um, that we can keep we can keep telling these stories. So, thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Be well. Bye. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.